0: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, Thank you for attending. Thanks also to our speakers today. Thanks also to our fine conference staff and our busy interns who do so much to make these uh, events come off without a hitch. Uh, Welcome to those of you also who are watching on Cato.org as all of our events are broadcast on the Internet these days. Um, Today we're discussing... Ted Galen Carpenter's book, Smart Power, Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America. Uh, The United States confronts a host of foreign policy problems today, uh, yet our overarching strategy, I think it's fair to say, is muddled and counterproductive. Uh, And and the litany of misplaced priorities and policy failures, it grows even larger by the day. Uh, This did not happen by accident. And I don't think it can be explained merely by bureaucratic inertia. This is the way we've done it, and this is the way we're going to continue to do it. No, what we have seen instead is a concerted effort on the part of the foreign policy intellectuals, I use that term advisedly, Mm -hmm. uh, to craft new arguments to sustain old alliances, to retain and expand outdated security commitments, and even to add some new ones. Now, this book, Smart Power, this is Ted's eighth, eighth book. I'm struggling to write my second. Ted is on number eight. Um, This is another important contribution to a much-needed debate over U.S. foreign policy that today seems trapped between – Different variations on the same theme, and the theme is the United States is the indispensable nation, the future of the world depends upon our active intervention in countless petty squabbles, and that the only alternative to such interventionism is isolationism and decline. Ted has been the bravest, I would argue, the most persistent and most eloquent voice of those advocating a very different foreign policy specifically a return to the Founders' vision, and a vision I think that was expressed best by Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Aware of the fact that most Americans, poll after poll showed this, most Americans would prefer a more restrained and prudent foreign policy. The defenders of the status quo are well aware of that, and that's why they are reluctant to expose our current strategy to public scrutiny. That's precisely what Ted has done throughout his long and distinguished career and in these essays in this book. Beyond documenting what is wrong with our current strategy, Ted also outlines an alternative that would protect America's security while avoiding unnecessary and unrewarding military interventions. It's a pleasure to introduce him today. My friend Ted Galen Carpenter is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. In addition to Smart Power, he's the author of seven other books on international affairs, including America's Coming War with China, a Collision Course Over Taiwan, The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, Bad Neighbor Policy, Washington's Feudal War on Drugs in, North, in Latin America, and The Search for Enemies, America's Alliances After the Cold War. He's edited another 10 books. I won't name them all. He's published more than 350 articles and policy studies uh, in, in all of the major newspapers, and he's been a guest on uh, radio and television programs around the world. He received his Ph.D. in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas. Please join me in welcoming Ted Carpenter.
1: Thank you very much, Chris, for that uh, extremely kind introduction. One of the great pleasures of working at the Cato Institute is I get to work with Chris and the other members of Cato's defense and foreign policy team, I think one of the most Talented groups I have ever encountered. When one deals with a book project of this sort, um, there are always a lot of uh, debts of gratitude. Uh, Far too many people I owe thank yous to uh, to mention by name, but I do want to single out three people for special mention. One is Ed Crane, who has been the uh, president of the Cato Institute since its founding in 1977 and who has uh, been so valuable in supporting the defense and foreign policy work of the Institute, Ed has understood, even when it might have been financially more rewarding to have forgotten about foreign policy, that one cannot have a society emphasizing the values of limited government, free markets, and civil liberties without also having a restrained and peaceful foreign policy, and it's to his credit that he has adhered to that vision for better than three decades. I also want to thank uh, a member of the foreign policy team, Malou Innocent. Uh, She at the time that this book was uh, developed was my administrative and research assistant. She has since uh, gotten a well-deserved promotion to uh, being a foreign policy analyst here at Cato. And on this book project, uh, she put in many, many hours. Uh, She is a young scholar, which was fortunate, because I think otherwise her hair probably would have turned entirely gray before this project was completed. And then finally, um, my great thanks to my wife Barbara for her patience and encouragement. Uh, She has been a self-described my number one fan for some four decades And without her, uh, so much of what I do would simply not have been possible. Uh, When you look at the book, you will notice that uh, a significant part of it is devoted to two topics, uh, Iraq and Iran. Uh, The Iraq portion is divided into two chapters, the first one dealing with the unsuccessful effort to prevent uh, America going to war in that country, and the second part an effort to critique our policy there uh, post-occupation and to develop a uh, coherent exit strategy from that pool of quicksand. Uh, The other uh, major focus is uh, our policy toward Iran and an effort to try to prevent a war that would be even worse, even more disastrous than the Iraq venture specifically a U.S. or a U.S.-Israeli attack on Iran because of its nuclear program. And again, uh, the critique is not merely negative. I try to develop a better strategy, one of dialogue, engagement, and possibly rapprochement with Tehran. Regarding the um, campaign to head off the invasion and occupation of Iraq, I am especially proud of an op-ed that appeared in 2002 January 2002 some 14 months before the invasion the title was overthrow saddam question mark be careful what you wish for and i want to read just a few sentences of that begins advocates of making the ouster of saddam hussein the next stage in america's war against terrorism are becoming increasingly vocal The United States has the military power to achieve that goal. Yet no matter how emotionally satisfying removing a thug like Saddam may seem, Americans would be wise to consider whether that step is worth the price. The inevitable American victory, military victory, would not be the end of America's troubles in Iraq. Indeed, it would mark the start of a new round of headaches. Ousting Saddam would make Washington responsible for Iraq's political future and entangle the United States in an endless nation-building mission beset by intractable problems. Well, that, uh, I think, pretty well nailed it. <laughs> but it was indicative of the problems that I faced and other opponents of war faced at the time, that this piece was carried by United Press International. A fine organization, but certainly not an agenda-setting outlet. And other people I talked to who spoke out against the war, including people with very impressive uh, credentials in the foreign policy field, encountered the same resistance I did among the elite publications. They simply were not interested in presenting this point of view at all. To be blunt, in the run-up to the Iraq War, the media played the role of lapdog, not watchdog, regarding administration policy. That became uh, all too clear quite recently when three uh, uh, television uh, news anchors were on a single program, and they discussed the uh, media's role in the lead-up to the Iraq War. And Katie Couric, to her credit... Uh, said, you know, the media did a lousy job. Uh, ABC television anchor Charles Gibson would have none of that. He said, absolutely not. We did a good job. We asked tough, probing questions. I sat there in utter disbelief, uh, not knowing whether to laugh or cry. Uh, And the sad thing is he probably believed what he was saying. (laughs) One can only hope that if the prospect of war with Iran or, for that matter, some other country increases, that this time the media will not abdicate their proper role as skeptical monitors of government policy. Now, the book, of course, deals with a lot of topics other than Iraq and Iran. Um, They cover everything from the international drug war to Balkan policy and some other issues that receive a lot of attention, the North Korean nuclear crisis and how to deal with that Right now we seem to be in the middle of an interminable diplomatic process with the probable result that at the end of the day we're going to have a North Korea with at least a small nuclear deterrent. And I've had a number of pieces where I ask uh, just how do we deal with that? Because the only option, if diplomacy does not work, of preventing that would be war against North Korea, and that would be an utter disaster for the Korean Peninsula, for East Asia, and for America's position in the world. That's simply not a credible option. Another issue that I look at a lot is the US-China relationship and specifically the focus on the Taiwan issue. Indeed, I, Chris noted, I've written an entire book on the Taiwan issue. Uh, there's some short-term good news on this topic, and that is there's a noticeable reduction now in cross-strait tensions with the election of uh, Ma Ying-ju as Taiwan's new president. This is a man, unlike his predecessor, uh, who is committed to preserving the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And for at least the next four years, that means a rather noticeable reduction in tensions. Longer term, though, I think the danger of a confrontation between Taiwan and the mainland remains high. The Taiwanese simply are not interested in reunification with China. Many of the Taiwanese are not interested, even if uh, China would become a liberal democracy. The problem is that uh, China is not likely to tolerate forever an upstart island 100 miles off its own shore, maintaining de facto independence, especially when most Chinese mainlanders regard Taiwan as rightfully Taiwanese territory. So looking out 10, 15, 20 years, I think we still have serious trouble in the Taiwan Strait. And thanks to the implicit U.S. security commitment embodied in the Taiwan Relations Act, the United States would be caught in the middle of any confrontation. That is a very worrisome prospect, especially as China builds an increasingly capable military. The Taiwan commitment is indicative of a larger problem with U.S. security strategy. Washington has a habit of taking on obligations to defend an assortment of weak, vulnerable, and often irrelevant client states. Indeed, we've reached the point now where U.S. policymakers pass out security commitments with about the same promiscuity that American soldiers passed out candy bars in Europe in World War II. Uh, Taiwan is certainly one, but we see it with NATO expansion, where we've in recent years added those military powerhouses, Slovakia, Slovenia, and the three Baltic republics. The three Baltic republics, very small states that have rather bad relations with their powerful Russian neighbor. In addition, uh, the Bush administration now is meddling in the quarrel between Russia and the Republic of Georgia over the status of the Georgian regions of Abkhazia and South Osatia. Now, it's possible, I suppose, to come up with uh, an issue that is less relevant to America's security and well-being, but it would take a concerted effort As my friend Doug Bondo pointed out in a a recent article, he said, essentially the United States is meddling in a quarrel between two former members of the Soviet Union over the political status of two even more obscure former members of the Soviet Union. The purpose of smart power was not just to examine specific foreign policy problems or blunders, although that is certainly a target-rich environment. Instead, it was to diagnose what is wrong with America's entire security strategy, indeed much of the nation's entire foreign policy. And here I want to emphasize that the problem is not just George W. Bush although he has clearly made matters worse over the last seven and a half years. But there is a more pervasive, long-term systemic problem in American foreign policy, and our blunders have been a bipartisan folly. Equally important, the goal of the book was to develop and present a less risky, more cost-effective approach an approach that I've described uh, over uh, the last decade and a half as strategic independence, which is the essence of smart power. The basic problems with our current strategy are twofold. First of all, it is far too expensive. Today, we have a normal military budget of more than $500 billion a year add in the so-called emergency expenditures for Iraq and Afghanistan. And emergency expenditures were originally designed to be for things we couldn't predict or anticipate. Uh, Given the fact we're now in our seventh year, I believe, in Afghanistan and into our sixth year in Iraq, uh, one would think this should be part of the normal budget, but that's not the way it's done in Washington. If you add those expenditures in, the U.S. military budget is at least $700 billion, and that, again, does not take into account long-term care for veterans and many other expenses. That outlay is approximately as much as the rest of the world combined spends on the military. Most other major economic powers have military budgets in the range of $30 billion to $60 billion a year. Although China, at least by some estimates, is now in the area of $100 billion a year. But that's still a huge gap between what the United States spends and what anybody else in the world spends. That's the imperial premium. That's the extra cost we pay for trying to manage the world. And even by Washington standards, that's serious money. But the current strategy is not just too expensive, it is far too dangerous. War has too often become the policy of first resort rather than the policy of last resort for the United States. If you don't believe that, consider the fact that the United States has used military force in in a significant way on ten separate occasions since the end of the Cold War in 1989, And, as I indicated before, we have obligations to defend an assortment of client states around the world, effectively making their quarrels with their neighbors our quarrels. That is a blueprint for an endless array of possible wars, most of which would have little or no relevance to America's security and well-being. The better approach that I outline in the book is strategic independence or smart power. Now, I want to emphasize it is not isolationism, although I can almost hear my neocon uh, friends uh, (laughs) arguing that that is what it is. Isolationism, first of all, is nothing but a stupid slur that is used to forestall debate. In reality, uh, strategic independence contemplates openness to the world diplomatically, economically, and culturally. I'm an advocate of global free trade. That's a rather odd thing for an isolationist to be advocating. But when it comes to military force, we should use that only to defend the vital security interests of the American people. In the book, I discuss at some length the nature of vital interests and also the nature of lesser interests that might justify some U.S. response, but not the use of military force. Now, what are the chances that we're going to get the needed change in foreign policy with the new administration in January 2009? Unfortunately, uh, the chances are not very good. Take John McCain. Please.
2: Please.
1: (laughs) Um, Senator McCain uh, quite possibly could even be more reckless than President Bush. Consider a number of the things he has advocated. He's willing to have a U.S. military presence in Iraq for a century. Now, he emphasizes he's not talking about fighting the Iraq war for a century. This would be a military presence in a nice, peaceful, united, happy, contented Iraq, something like South Korea. Now, I worry about a person who confuses the violent, fractious society that is Iraq, with the ethnically homogeneous and peaceful society of South Korea, that at least for a very long time things are now changing, but for a very long time was quite happy to have U.S. protection against Communist North Korea. Senator McCain has suggested that the U.S. consider bombing North Korea, and he did so both in the 1993 94 nuclear crisis and in connection with the current crisis. And then there is his infamous uh, little uh, singing episode in which he sang, Bomb, 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 Iran, to the tune of the Beach Boys' Barbara Ann. You also have his foreign policy advisors, which is beginning to look like uh, an assembly of uh, the who's who of the neoconservative community, And uh, this team places a great deal of emphasis on issues like defending the Republic of Georgia and also standing up to Russia and China, although they tend to be rather vague about what that means exactly or the probable consequences of a confrontational policy. To be blunt, Senator McCain seems to be an intellectual captive of the neocons. In a worst-case scenario, and we may see that, McCain would be George Bush on steroids Or perhaps uh, Dick Cheney without the charm (laughs) A McCain foreign policy looks suspiciously like a foreign policy for paranoids In the view of his foreign policy team, every adversary in the world seems to be a serious threat And every tin-pot dictator is seen as the next Hitler To McCain and his supporters, it's always 1938 somewhere and the United States is in danger of falling into the trap of appeasement just like Neville Chamberlain at Munich. It is his foreign policy approach is a blueprint for numerous Vietnam or Iraq style interventions with predictably unpleasant consequences. Would an Obama administration be better? perhaps. Uh, there are a few encouraging signs. Senator Obama opposed the Iraq war vocally at a time when it wasn't all that popular to oppose the Iraq war. And he has sensibly called for dialogue with adversaries, even in the teeth of allegations from President Bush and his supporters that merely talking to unpleasant regimes constitutes appeasement. One doesn't have to make tangible concessions. Merely engaging with them is appeasement. Those are encouraging signs, but there are also some worrisome signs. Um, if you look at his growing <coughs> roster of advisors, there are now a lot of Clinton administration retreads, like Madeleine Albright, Richard Holbrook, Anthony Lake, and Susan Rice. And you have people like Rice and Professor Sarah Sewell of uh, Harvard University who are pushing openly for a foreign policy based on the defense of human dignity around the world. Well, I'm sorry, but human dignity as a basis for foreign policy is an incredibly vague concept. Indeed, it would have to move up several levels in terms of substance to reach vacuous. Uh, Indeed, the mind kind of boggles at trying to intervene to uphold human dignity in the numerous, chronically misgoverned countries around the world. For example, I think some of these people are the ones who are suggesting that the United States intervene militarily in Burma to force the junta to allow the delivery of humanitarian aid following the tsunami. Uh, I fail to see how creating military chaos in a country would necessarily benefit the population which is already suffering from the, the aftermath, I'm sorry the cyclone, not the tsunami if taken seriously this doctrine has the potential to be even more interventionist than Bush's foreign policy or what a McCain foreign policy would be It's uncertain which way a President Obama will go, and uh, that should at least make us a bit uneasy. Americans should reject both approaches, the promiscuous interventionism for warped strategic rationales that McCain contemplates, or the promiscuous interventionism in the name of trying to cure all the world's ills, which many of Obama's advisors seem to wish to give us. It is hard enough to execute a foreign policy that confines itself to defending and advancing vital American interests. It is beyond the capability even of a superpower to take on the more expansive agendas of either the neoconservatives or the liberal internationalist moral crusaders. Equally important, the Constitution speaks of providing for the common defense, does not speak of providing for the security of other countries that are not relevant to U.S. security or of doing good deeds around the world. Our government has neither a constitutional mandate nor a moral mandate to spend American tax dollars, much less sacrifice American lives, to attempt to manage the planet or bring democracy and enlightenment to troubled areas of the world at the point of U.S. bayonets and cruise missiles. The necessity for a foreign policy of realism and restraint is the ultimate reason why I wrote the essays in Smart Power. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Ted. Well, it's my distinct pleasure to uh, introduce our two commentators today. I'll introduce both of them, and then they'll speak in order. First, I'd like to welcome Stephen Clemens, Senior Fellow and Director of the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. He's also the publisher of the popular popular political blog, The Washington Note. Uh, Steve writes frequently on a range of issues, including foreign and defense policy, but also international economics and domestic politics. His work has appeared in many leading op-ed pages and magazines around the world. He's been very active here in Washington for many years. He was previously executive director at New America, executive vice president of the Economic Strategy Institute, senior policy advisor to Senator uh, on uh, economic international affairs to Senator Jeff Bingaman. He was also the first executive director of the Nixon Center. Uh, and before that, he, out, in, out in California, Steve was executive director of the Japan-America Society of Southern California, and he co-founded with Chalmers Johnson the Japan Policy Research Institute, of which he is still director. He serves on a number of boards, including the Global Policy and Innovations Program at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs and the Citizens for Global Solutions Education Fund. Our second commentator is Doug Bondow. Doug is the Robert A Taft fellow and a board member at the American Conservative Defense Alliance. He's also vice president of policy for Citizen Outreach, a Washington-based grassroots political organization. He has affiliations with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the Institute for Policy Innovation. He was formerly a senior fellow here at Cato. Before that, he served as, senior, as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and a senior policy analyst in the Reagan for President campaign. Doug has written and edited several books, including Foreign Follies, America's New Global Empire, The Korean Conundrum, America's Troubled Relations with North and South Korea, which he co-wrote with Ted, and Tripwire, Korea and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World. He's also published widely, including such periodicals, Time, Newsweek, Foreign Policy, National Review, and the New Republic, and in major newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He's appeared on many radio and television programs, including my personal favorite, The Oprah Winfrey Show. And he received his B.S. in economics from Florida State University and his J.D. from Stanford University. Please join me in welcoming first Steve Clemens.
2: Thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be here at the Cato Institute again. see my old friend uh, Doug Bandow, and I want to recognize Bill Niskanen, who's been a great friend for a long time uh, since I first moved to Washington. Um, it's, it's awkward to be up here as the sort of uh, token brought in uh, to potentially bash or lay out alternative options to my friend Ted Galen Carpenter's book. Um, I thought a lot about it, about how difficult this task was. Um, I could play the role of a concert of democracies advocate, which I should say I'm not, uh, uh, say pretend to be Anne-Marie Slaughter or perhaps Susan Rice or Tony Lake. Uh, I could find lots to take on in the book if I, if I shared their views. Um, I could take on the role of John Bolton, a pugnacious nationalist in sort of the new Jesse Helms in American foreign policy circles, uh, and find a lot to rip your book apart. Um, I could be the Frank Gaffney of the day, the nuke them now and get it over with crowd, um, sort of the Curtis LeMay uh, of, of modern uh, foreign policy. Um, I could be Pat Buchanan uh, and, and be the withdrawal from America set up or withdraw from the world, Fortress America, which definitively this book is not. And I think I, I share very much Ted's thing. I could be the Pentagon hugging crowd, of which there are too many names uh, to mention uh, in this. What what I am going to approach the book on is 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 one of real respect for the role that Ted Galen Carpenter has. This is a must-read book. Must-read is something we often say in the blogging world when you run into something that's so fundamentally important to get a broad cross-section of understanding of how American foreign policy has been evolving, the challenges facing the country have been evolving, and how we've so regularly and continually gotten the policy responses wrong. What I love about Ted Carpenter's book is the internal consistency of all of these essays. Over a long period of time on so many different uh, subjects. I, I, of course, have differences with Ted, uh, which I'll, I will get into, um, but I, I, I approach my own uh, views in U.S. foreign policy as one where I try to abandon ideology in the way I think about it and sort of look at the questions of what is happening to America's national security portfolio today, not just in the classic geostrategic ends, but also in geoeconomic ends. And when I look at what hap- happened, and I come from a different, very different set of perspectives than my friend Ted does, but we find ourselves very much in the same place, that America's national security portfolio is in pretty bad shape. And and a lot is, is on the uh, horizon that may actually uh, send us even further uh, over the brink. When you look, I, I very much appreciated Ted laying out some of the um, intellectual contours and differences. Uh, and I w- while I was flip in terms of defining some, I think it's very important to remember that there are civil wars going on both within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, even in libertarian circles, over how to approach these subjects. And there are no easy answers. If you look at the Democratic Party... Um, not only in the names that Ted listed with Obama, but there clearly is a divide between a kind of dying or at least sagging or tired liberal internationalist order. The liberal internationalists seem so close to realists today, but we used to really bash it out. But now they're our best friends to some degree in this battle. They're the sensible ones versus a class of liberal interventionists who have very fuzzy and undefined um, parameters for what they think is worth deploying American power. Um, In the... Republican circles, we have, of course, the, the tension between realism and neoconservatism, which has already been talked about enough. And but even in, in with my friends in the libertarian circles, and I have lots of libertarian friends, though I I don't I, I think I'm brought into the to the barbecues um, as a as a token guy on the other side. They sort of like me, but not sure why. Um, there's a a a, de- a a division between the kind of realist tilt, the worry about size of government spending. The ethics of tax dollars and how to think about power, which is not a kind of pacifism, where I think Ted is, versus those who, who I would put in more of a camp of being liberty hawks. Liberty, justice, and, and to some degree, it's an interesting kind of value side. It's certainly not neoconservatism, but there is a tension along those divides about when you deploy force, and I think they tilt more towards uh, 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 the application of it. Um, than and, and I think that the hurdles to get over for the realist tilting libertarians are, are slightly higher. In any case, that's the contour, that's the environment, the ecosystem of debate today. And why Ted's book is so important is it deals with real world issues, just a, a, a whole cross-section from China, the Middle East, uh, thinking about the drug, the uh, uh, the war on drugs, et cetera, and, and what has worked. And I think if you come away from his book, you realize that the biggest deficit that America has in the world today is the sense around the world that we can't achieve our objectives that we set out to do, that we become more bluster and posture uh, than we have become results, that we approach um, important issues. I I had a debate with a fellow named Richard Just at the New Republic, for I know Richard may be here, uh, about Hillary Clinton's comments on abandoning the, uh, getting Bush to abandon the uh, opening uh, game ceremonies in China over Tibet and Darfur. Now, maybe that's something that should be done. But a disconnected PR stunt that has no concern and no design on how you actually get a change in Tibet and Darfur, what are you willing to deploy over time to achieve those results? Is nothing else but a PR stunt, and it may actually stoke virulent strains of China uh, in China that we may have to deal with in other uh, arenas. There's no sense of cost or consequence in much of the posturing that's going on in either of the campaigns. This is why I think if Chuck Hagel was was if he was running, I think you'd be advising him. I think I'm not sure. I don't want to presume too much. But, but the Chuck Hagel template and the Ted Galen Carpenter template are fundamentally missing in this electoral season, and it's something that should be said loudly and noted. I met uh, Ted. I want to talk a little bit about the book, but I want to m- mention two things that are not in the book, because they're important to sort of show, again, the way he thinks and why I think it's important. I, um, I am friends and, and have been a long-term collaborator with Chalmers Johnson. We had, didn't agree so much on the last book, uh, that he did Nemesis, but very much on the book Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire and his book Nemes, um, 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 Sorrows. Sorrows of Empire. A- at the time when we were running the Japan Policy Research Institute as sort of a virtual watering hole for smart thinking on Japan and Asia, which Ted uh, wrote for us, um, a rape of a 12-year-old girl in Okinawa in September of 1995 took place. Massive protests took place against American bases at the time. And it really awakened and manifested uh what I thought was important and not very well seen in, in the United, in Washington was the sense that while the superstructure of Soviet empire, its vassals and acolytes, its superstructure of how it maintained its place in the world, in which the United States very much organized itself in very much a similar kind of superstructure, theirs collapsed and ours didn't. And when you looked at these deployment of nearly 800 military installations around the world outside of the United States, the social contract, the strategic bargain, the basic civilian understanding in these places of why we were there had come undone. But we continue continued through inertia and through a kind of sense of empire and and grasping for assets we didn't want to give up, continued down the same direction. I had a friendly debate with Strobe Talbot uh, around the time of the G8 meeting in Okinawa where we had these massive protests in Japan, poorest prefecture in Japan, uh, by the way, hosting 39 U.S. military installations and um, uh, the largest protest against our president we have I became interested in this subject. That's what led me to be interested in the bases in Saudi Arabia well before 9-11 occurred, Um, became friends with Peter Bergen because I was convinced that we were blind to the destabilizing side of U.S. presence in the world in these bases, and that they could be uh, anchors of instability. Brent uh, Strobe Talbot called them anchors of stability in unstable regions, and I said, had you thought about the reverse, that they could become over time? Ted and I talked about this many times in a project that involved Clyde Prestowitz, Selleck Harrison, and some others, and uh, I think it was, in fact, Ted Carpenter who helped me focus my mind around this question of looking at the other end, the other parts of the equation that weren't being considered by the National Security Establishment with regard to these bases and our blindness uh, in inertia. Another area that he doesn't talk about uh, uh, to the degree that I, I once had a conversation with was nuclear proliferation. And, again, he may not recall this, but he basically said something along the lines of, let's give proliferation a chance. <laughs> and <clears> – <throat> I didn't see the essay in the book, but, but it, it, uh, it, I think he was being facetious in, in the sense that we often set ourselves up for the fact that America often, in the way it approaches things, creates a platform that itself becomes a moral hazard. And other actors in the international system exploit, free ride, and take advantage of America's position on these various issues, and that if you let the weight and fear and and reactions of other players in the global system take hold, i.e., the potential proliferation of other partners, you might see some alternative behaviors from the Irans, the North Koreas, and and, and others. But our own presence out there to the the degree to which it becomes becomes a moral hazard and a platform for other things. Three quick minor differences that I want to just put on the the, the table, and they're very minor. and I, and I have to say that I may disagree with myself even on these. Um, Israel-Palestine, I think, as I look at m- – the way I look at geostrategy is one – it is not insoluble. It is one of the it's, – it's one of the easier conflicts, I think, that could be solved. And America, uh, uh, to some degree, has, has – if you look at the polling on both sides of this, to some degree, has, has meddled, gotten in the way. In that sense, I'd like us to withdraw – or da- you know, de, de- uh, uh, mo- the seriousness of, of this in our in our profile to the degree that we get outway from the negative forces that, that preempt I think a very necessary progress towards a two-state solution in this region, which, which we need with the Arab world. The Arab world eventually is going to find itself allied one way or another with Israel against other forces in the region. And we are preempting that because of a hyperactivity in the region that looks like negligence. We are, we are, we are behind the scenes hyper-involved. Uh, my colleague at, at the New American Foundation, Daniel Levy, simply wants us to tilt in more positive direction to let the gravity in the region take, take place. So while I'd, I want to withdraw on the bad stuff, there I think there is a positive role uh, that the United States, Saudi Arabia, other stakeholders in the region in a concert of powers can do. Yep, one minute. On NATO, um, look, I think, I don't agree with Hans Ben and the National Defense University that NATO should be preserved at all costs in all ways and find whatever convenient purpose is around. Hans is sort of the biggest promoter of that idea. On the other hand, um, there, are, there are there is a I'm not a NATO triumphalist or a NATO forever type, but I don't want to wash it away uh, uh, completely because it does have value. It sets up a template for thinking about where I think we need to go in other parts of the world. We have – the United States used to act through proxies, used to act through others. I think it was a healthier way, actually, to to engineer America. Now we're on the front line uh, uh, in too many parts of the world, and we need to look at an alternative structure. And I think we need to move towards a concert of powers, uh, trying to figure out how you cultivate responsible nodes of management, uh, responsible nodes of stability, responsible nodes that has some DNA of you know, to, to, of, of liberty-promoting aspects we can even put out there. But to some degree, from my, my realism, says whether or not hey, we want to have stability, but the United States can't be on the front line of that. NATO-like structures gives us at least some template for that. We're wrecking it now, and we are Driving ourselves into a train wreck with Russia, uh, which I find deeply disturbing and completely agree with uh, Ted's view on that. But I, I'm not as negative on the uh, importance of the institution. I know. Time is up. <laughs> uh, democracy promotion, he takes on strongly. Um, and uh, I would as well, and it's done done badly. But I will put in, I'll, say some, I'll end with something provocative. I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room who don't like George Soros. Let me tell you why I think George Soros is interesting. Because Soros, in a non-governmental way, outside the United States and outside the question of American <coughs> politics, has nonetheless been doing what I think needs to happen in the world, which is, which is uh, groups that are eno- enabled, that are, uh, able to do the resources to help promote liberty, self determination, civil society building, uh, promotion of uh, minority rights within within justice systems. That's a kind of organic led democracy promotion that I totally, totally support and is not what the United States government is doing or promoting today, which gets us in a very different bind. Um, That is transformational diplomacy, and it's the kind of thing that we need more of. So while I agree that Ted's formulation of democracy promotion uh, is something that's disconcerting, wrongheaded, and undermining American interests in the world, I think we should be brave to say that there are other models where there are good things going on and we ought to let uh, those kind of flowers bloom and find ourselves, give ourselves the wherewithal to admit it uh, that that something like OSI and there are many other institutions that have done this um, are are in fact uh, making the world to some degree a better place, less conflict, etc. Thank you for listening, and TED. Congratulations on a great book.
3: Thank you.
0: Uh, I'm not going to take that chance. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, thanks, Chris. Go ahead. I appreciate the opportunity to come and to join my friends, uh, Steve and Chris, on this panel, but particularly to comment on the work of my friend of very long-standing, a former colleague and co-author, Ted Galen Carpenter. It's a great pleasure to share the podium with Ted. It always is, and I, I think for many years in the future, I hope we do as well. In a city of conformity, uh, Ted offers us some very real alternatives, While, as Steve says, that there is kind of a civil war within different uh, political movements and parties, nevertheless, foreign policy in America, in very broad terms, is dominated by an internationalist consensus. If you look at Iraq, for example, there's partisan discord. But one, uh, I think, is entitled to suspect that if it was Bill Clinton who had decided to invade Iraq that there would have been an almost total flip of both parties, The Democrats would have risen in applause to this wonderful exercise of democracy promotion, and Republicans would have expressed themselves horrified at this irresponsible exercise of military power. If one looks at the debate on Iran today, there are differences, I suppose, between Barack Obama and John McCain. If nothing else, Barack Obama doesn't wander around singing about the possibility of bombing another country. Nevertheless, one wonders, you know, at the end of the day, is the argument much over do we talk about them before we bomb them or not? If you look at least within the Democratic Party, certainly more broadly in Hillary Clinton, that one finds hawkishness kind of throughout in terms of dealing with Iran. One thinks about overall interventionist foreign policy – the Democrats seem slightly less hawkish on the big issues. You know, they seem rather less interested in uh, confronting you know, Russia over the status of uh, South Ossetia and uh, you know, Abkhazia, for which I think we can be thankful. Nevertheless, you sense within Democratic ranks a greater enthusiasm for going off to war, or perhaps on Darfur or something else. That there are differences, uh, you know, within the elites. Nevertheless, the consensus is we should intervene. The argument is over exactly where, how often, and when. And if one looks at uh, military spending, which is truly the price of our foreign policy, everyone says we need more troops. Virtually all of the Republican contenders did so, and we find that as well among the uh, the two leading Democratic contenders, as well as the one who seems destined for the Democratic nomination. Again, there's an argument over should it be 4% or 4.5% or maybe 6% of GDP. Nevertheless, everyone wants more divisions, more combat arms, and larger forces. And I think this has essentially been the way politics has uh, operated on foreign policy over the last two decades when Ted has been you know, working and writing and publishing those many books. If one looks at uh, attitudes within the Cold War. One looks at the uh, perspective of NATO. One looks at the view of Korea and Japan. One looks at Gulf War I. You look at the many smaller conflicts along the way, for the most part – you know, the foreign policy elite in the capital want to intervene. They argue over differences here and there. Nevertheless, on most of those issues, there was general unanimity of the essential role of American intervention, the need for America to have a very large military presence, the absolute necessity for America to lead and to dominate, in almost all of those issues. That uh, The overall uh, your view was one of uh, very promiscuous war-making and intervention. Now, Ted's you know, perspective embodied in smart power obviously is very different, and he sets the, uh, the issue off very well, I believe, in the introduction because he looks at the, the failure of contemporary American foreign policy, which is truly profound, you know, the, and I think he nicely captures the disjunction between essentially inputs and outputs. You know, the United States dominates the globe. The U.S. accounts for roughly half of all military spending on Earth. The U.S. is allied with every major industrialized country on the planet, except for Russia and China, if we want to count them in that category. The U.S. has 800 bases around the world. The U.S. has a dozen carrier groups, to none for China, for example. If you look at normal measures of military power, military spending, alliances, bases, all of those things, the U.S. should be secure but instead, we find ourselves at times acting as if we're a beleaguered third world state. <laughs> you know, the debate before Iraq led me to wonder at times which country was the small country devastated by a decade of sanctions and which country was the global superpower. That if we did not strike immediately, we were going to be overwhelmed by Saddam Hussein, who was so incredibly dangerous with all of these presumptive weapons. We certainly don't live at a time of peace, whereas Ted pointed out, you know, a half dozen years of war in both Afghanistan and Iraq, threatening war against Iran, worried about uh, nuclear developments in North Korea, you know, talking about expanding NATO. That what you find is, in certain ways, we seem more insecure today than we did during the Cold War. You know, in the Cold War, we faced a genuine evil empire. I think Ronald Reagan got that right—a monstrous tyranny that had expressed itself militarily, that was threatening, that held its people in bondage. Today, as I think Colin Powell put it a few years back when he was Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, I'm running out of enemies. I'm down to Kim Il-sung and Fidel Castro. You know, those two, though nasty characters, weren't much of a replacement for Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and a whole raft of others. Nevertheless, if you look at the debate today, we find people, particularly in the neoconservative camp, and I I worry, Ted, that you might have friends in the neoconservative (laughs) camp. It was something I wasn't aware of. But uh, people in the neoconservative camp who tell us, apparently in all seriousness, that the threats we face today are as serious as those as we faced in World War II. This is a new world war. You know, as dangerous as it was during the Cold War. If you look at uh, George Bush's proposed military spending for next year, we will spend more than we spent at any point during the Cold War, Korean War, or Vietnam War, when you adjust for inflation. Now, that's an extraordinary amount of money because in those wars – we had real enemies. and Certainly the Cold War. I mean, the Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact, at least early on, allied with Maoist China, nuclear. I mean, this, is, this we understand. But today we are told the threat is even greater. The threat of, yes, nasty, evil people. But really, Al-Qaeda is more threatening? Iran more threatening? North Korea more threatening? How can that be? And I think that Ted put his finger on the real flaws of American foreign policy. He mentioned three of them that struck him as being uh, very significant, and I would agree with him. One is the preservation of old alliances. I mean, I think there may be a role for NATO, but it strikes me it should be a European-led and European-funded and European manned defense force as opposed to a force led by, run by, you know, dominated by the United States. When we look at uh, Korea and Japan, the question, of course, is what are we still doing there? South Korea happily provides aid to North Korea. South Koreans, you know, demonstrate and protest the thought that American beef might be uh, imported into their country. You ask younger South Koreans which country is more dangerous, North Korea and, uh, or the United States, and more of them answer North Korea. The uh, South Korea trades more with China today than it does with the United States. The question is why are we still defending them when they have 40 times the GDP, twice the population, and many other advantages, advantages that we talked about in our book, The Korean Conundrum. Ted also mentions, and I think very important, the extension of commitments to dubious new clients. I happen to like, uh, you know, some of our uh, new clients in Eastern Europe, but I'm not sure why we should defend them. And I have a very hard time understanding why it is up to us to try to determine border settlements between Georgia and the uh, Soviet or the Russia. I imagine the response, if we reverse the situation, assume some sort of, uh, you know, a separatist movement, Chiapas perhaps, in Mexico, where Russia decided to uh, intervene and decide it could choose. Who would dominate Chiapas? The United States probably would find that uh, rather, um, well, I don't know, arrogant perhaps, inappropriate, <coughs> violation of the Monroe Doctrine. <coughs> Nevertheless, the United States claims the right to dominate every section of every part of the globe and to determine every uh, outcome. Kosovo should be independent, South Ossetia should part of, be part of Georgia, of course. Finally, as Ted points out, the intervention in kind of You know, meddlesome conflicts around the globe, small conflicts, conflicts of very little importance to the United States. Tragic, of course. But of course, if one looks around the world, tragedy has been part of the international scene throughout human history. And the question of whether the United States should be the final arbiter, whether it becomes to Kosovo, or whether it's Burundi, or Rwanda, or fill in the blank. Yet today we find a presumption that 18-year-old young Americans, men and women, should patrol the globe and should make these determinations, should bring democracy to countries that have never had democracy, to try to impose a political order upon societies that don't have the civil order that are necessary to undergird them, yet that has become the new American purpose, apparently, and joined by uh, both many conservatives and many liberals, an extraordinary, and some libertarians, in fact, a, a very, an extraordinary event in my view. So I want to, to really uh, you know, compliment Ted on his book, that he's been, he's been fighting these wars for many years here, I hope he's going to fight them for a number war, number more years, a good colleague and a man of honor in this city. He deserves to be pleased with this book that he's published. It's thoughtful. It's important. It provides, it strikes me, an unusual uh, combination for Washington policy texts. It's intellectually serious. It's factually based. And it's forward-looking. <laughs> He offers us an alternative, a serious alternative to flawed policies today, ones that I think fit uh, the reality around us, and ones which are rarely discussed in this Capitol. So I encourage all of you to buy his book and to read it, because I think these are arguments that need to be held and need to be heard in the nation's capital. Thank you very
1: much.
0: <clears throat> do you want, Ed, Ed, do you want to say anything?
1: I'll just make a, a couple of very brief comments, because I know we want to get to... Uh, Questions from the audience. Uh, first of all, I want to thank both uh, Steve and Doug for their uh, very thoughtful comments. Uh, Doug, of course, is the author of a uh, book published uh, just last year, Foreign Follies, which is without a doubt the second best collection <laughs> on foreign policy <laughs> that you, has Dad. been published. <laughs> um, uh, just to comment on a couple of points uh, that Steve raised. Um, First of all, I want to uh, clarify my position on proliferation. I am not a fan of proliferation. Uh, I know uh, one individual (laughs) who actually published an article in the New York Times magazine with the title "Let Them Have Nukes," which not chosen by the author. Not (laughs) not chosen by the
2: (laughs) author. I think we were drinking beers or (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: something. I certainly don't like nuclear proliferation, but I'm also at core a realist and. I sense that the non-proliferation system symbolized by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is unraveling. I think the emergence of India and Pakistan as full-fledged nuclear weapon states uh, was a potentially fatal blow to that system. North Korea's emergence, and I think that's ongoing, is likely to deal a further blow. I think we can still slow this process, and to the extent that we can try to have an influence and... Uh, delay the ability of uh, unstable or aggressive states to acquire nuclear weapons, that's a good thing. It's just the notion of a nuclear-free world is about as unrealistic uh, as a gun-free society in the United States. It has many of the same defects of logic. Um, I'm not entirely opposed to Steve's concept of a concert of powers, but I think to get other major powers to step forward, to take greater responsibility, to adopt the uh, policy, in essence, of uh, taking responsibility for order and stability and justice in their own regions, the United States has to do less, not more. That what we are is the geostrategic equivalent of the person who's always volunteering to pick up the dinner check. And although friends may prevent the person who wants to do that from picking it up all the time when it comes to nation states no one is willing to step forward and prevent us from doing that when the united states is willing to take responsibility for just about everything around the world other nations are perfectly content to step back to free ride on the u.s. and to fail to be serious about security issues we've seen that disease most pronounced in the european union But it affects other countries, Uh, Japan, for example, a country that certainly should play a much more constructive and active role in security affairs in East Asia, but has been perfectly willing to let the United States take the lead on that. So I think that these are changes that we have to make in our foreign policy. Uh, I'm not going to go on uh, much further than that. I'm sure there will be other questions that arise. Uh, during the next portion of the uh, forum, I'll be happy to address uh, those issues as well. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you, Ted. Um, we now have time for Q and A, about uh, well, at least twenty minutes, and uh, we have a few ground rules here at Cato, uh, not so different from everywhere else in town. Uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, Please identify yourself and affiliation if uh, relevant. And uh, also, please uh, keep your comments uh, in the form of a question. In other words, no speech making, please. Uh, Okay, Uh, down here, Juliana.
3: Can we pull the lights
0: up in the back so I can see if there are people?
3: Okay. I'm Juliana Pilan. I teach at the Institute of World Politics. Um, Your last comment, Ted. Uh, Much appreciated that the United States shouldn't just step in uh, when other nations are reluctant to do their share. But in your book, you indicate that in Afghanistan, it might be necessary for the United States to, let's see as you put it... uh, May the Afghan defeating the insurgents may require a modest increase in the number of U.S. troops over the short term. Uh, Bob Gates has been has been chastising the NATO members, the allies who are in Afghanistan, to please add some troops, and they are very reluctant. Uh, This sort of Approach seems to be counter to what you just said. So I guess there are some exceptions. But my question specifically, aside from trying to reconcile that seeming contradiction, uh, when it comes to Pakistan, you point out in your book that Washington should inform Musharraf that we intend to wipe out the Al Qaeda sanctuaries in the northwest frontier province with or without Islamabad's permission. Uh, if John McCain said something like this, I suppose he would hear from us. But uh, bombing or in any case invading in any way, shape, or form a nuclear power would seem to be almost as as dangerous as, uh, as uh, bombing another nuclear power in the Middle East. So how do you justify that? Thank, Thank you.
1: you. Okay. Uh, You managed to find the, uh, I think, the only two hawkish sentiments I've expressed. (laughs) Um, Let me say, first of all, with Afghanistan, I think that is the one justifiable war the United States has waged since World War II. Uh, We were attacked. Uh, Al-Qaeda had its bases in Afghanistan. The Taliban regime openly gave uh, Al-Qaeda sanctuary. It was, at the very least, a passive accomplice in the attacks of September 11th. We were entirely justified in going in and taking out the Taliban government. I wish we had sustained that offensive instead of being diverted to Iraq. I think things might have turned out differently and much better in Afghanistan. The piece that I wrote about uh, to to, uh, address your first concern, that's why I would like help from the European allies. That would be nice. And it would also be nice not only if they committed troops, but they didn't put so many restrictions on them that, in many cases, they are utterly useless. Um, But it is our primary responsibility. We were attacked. This is a direct threat to our security. In that case, I'm perfectly willing to have the United States step forward, even with a temporary escalation if that becomes necessary. Um, I think we also need an exit strategy for Afghanistan so we're not mired there for the next 20 or 30 years which we seem to be drifting into that mode. As far as uh, the attack on Pakistan, thats uh, I need to clarify that because I meant hot pursuit, in essence. If uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda launch attacks against U.S. forces in Afghanistan uh, from sanctuaries in Pakistan, we have to be willing to go across the border. And I think with the Pakistani government, we have to be very blunt about it. Look, Islamabad doesn't control that area. It never has. And you just need to look the other way. We're not going to do this in a highly public fashion, but we don't expect you to interfere either because that would be a very serious matter from a standpoint of our security. Here on the aisle, and then I'll, I'll come down to you, sir.
2: <clears throat> First is simply of affordability, given the graying of our population... And the fact
1: that we have substantial deficits, even regardless of what one desired overseas could can we even afford to continue our policy and the other is given we 're in a presidential election year and the conventions are coming up, how accurately can we read the tea leaves about each what each candidate would do, especially to um, given the determination of the Democrats to and to paraphrase George Wallace, not to be out national security ever again in a, a
2: presidential election. <laughs> okay,
1: um, it's certainly a lot harder to read the tea leaves with regard to Barack Obama because on foreign policy there are relatively few tea leaves to read. With McCain, we have a much more detailed record, and it is a really scary uh, record in terms of his attitude. As far as the affordability, you know, one of the Uh, Advantages of being a superpower is that you can afford to do a lot of stupid things over a long period of time and get away with it. Other countries with more limited resources and uh, greater vulnerabilities, I think, would have had to become far more serious about developing a rational security strategy a long time ago. I don't know how long we can afford it. Uh, We can continue to tax. We can continue to borrow for a very long time. But at some point, there is going to be a very serious economic price to pay for that. I don't know if that's five years from now. I don't know if it's 20 years from now or, uh, you know, 30 years from now. But it's going to happen. Uh, We are already damaging our economy by this kind of uh, promiscuous uh, spending and intervention. Uh, I would like to see us make the policy changes now while we still have lots of options and we haven't damaged ourselves too badly, uh, rather than do it, uh, say, 15 or 20 years from now, when it's really being forced on us and we have almost no choice but to to make adjustments, that in many cases might be quite disruptive to the world scene. We're not executing an orderly redeployment, if you will, of American geopolitical assets. We could have a... uh, a very rapid and perhaps even panicked withdrawal, that would not be a healthy development.
2: Steve, you want to add something? I just want to add a comment that I think it's a, it's a significant mistake to look at the dollars and cents side uh, of of the costs of war exclusively with regard to what has happened. Um, Ted's book, Smart Power, sort of leads into this, that what we have saw Iraq do is it fundamentally became the puncture point of, 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 of the American mystique as a superpower. And why is mystique as a superpower important? It's how you win in everything. It's how you win in trade deals. It's how you win when you're negotiating nuclear arrangements. It's how you, 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 you make the sort of global economic order because no one has a sense of our limits. You, we used to go around the world or, and people would look at and say, you know, the thing with America that may, maybe they didn't like is they didn't have any sense of, of what our limits or bounds were on our power. Once you show your limits. You shear off that that mystique as a superpower and neither your allies count on you as much and your enemies move agendas and your global equilibrium has been thrown off. And that's the position we're at. So the costs are so much more profound than the budget deficit. Uh, And and I just want to emphasize that point because it's a cheap way out. Even after reading Joe Stiglitz's book, it's a cheap way out of looking at what this country has lost because of the Iraq War.
4: Uh, Doug? Yeah, I think the graying of the population is going to put enormous financial pressure on. I mean, the 75-year uh, time horizon estimate on s- Medicare and Social Security alone is like $45 trillion in unfunded liabilities. You do the unlimited horizon, it's $100 trillion. So, you know, as the baby-booming generation starts retiring – Those numbers, how you can sustain $700, $800 billion defense budgets along with rapidly increasing Social Security and Medicare, which will eventually be a bigger program expenditure-wise in Social Security, that I think is going to put a big crunch. Then the rest of the budget, how do you fund anything if you're spending that kind of money on those three programs alone?
0: Uh, There was a question down here in the front, and then I'll get a few in the back.
2: My name is uh, My name is Jorge Navarro. I'm from the Embassy of Mexico. I have a question. Uh, this is an academic for your book, but you have in the page 24 224 to 226 a reproduction of chronicles, a reporter's view of Mexico in the dro- in the fight against, in, against drugs. So why not to go deeper and make like a research analysis with more? There's a serious statement that just to Chronicles, which is just a reporter's uh, point of view. Thank
1: you. Okay. Well, I've done a great deal of work on the drug war in the past. Uh, I have looked more at uh, the Andean countries than I've looked at Mexico, although uh, there was a significant chapter in my uh, book in 2003, The Bad Neighbor Policy that looked at the Mexico situation. I think we have to be extremely alarmed at the rising level of violence in Mexico, particularly along the uh, U.S.-Mexican border, uh, with the drug trafficking organizations being now in almost open combat with the uh, Mexican government. Um, This is a serious security matter for the United States. This is not something that is uh, of marginal relevance. Mexico is is our immediate neighbor it is a partner in the North America Free Trade Agreement. Um, this is something we have to be very concerned about. And I wish, for example, that the Washington Post would devote one tenth the amount of attention to what is going on along the U.S. Mexico border with the uh, drug related violence than it is willing to devote to the horse race stories with regard to the uh, political campaign and whose strategy seems more enlightened and which one is working better with the voters and more uh, of these political equivalent of inside baseball stories that, frankly, I can't imagine any person with an IQ above room temperature really, really caring about. (laughs) Um, Back there, sir.
0: The issue uh, is raised, to what end? And I'm wondering what your opinions would be on whether or not a superpower and antagonist confrontation, is it all likely? Um, A paper I read by two Chinese officers, for example, a few months ago, seemed to take a much more circuitous route. I mean, they took the attitude that um, it's very unlikely that someone would want to go up against the United States in its own strength, and rather, you know, you might want to take some a more um, subtle way, uh, cyber warfare, for example, or uh, messing around with the economy. Um, is uh, any kind of superpower confrontation plausible in the relatively near future?
1: Well, the United States, unless it really dissipates its resources and advantages, is not going to have a peer competitor for at least the next generation China is the, more, the most likely peer competitor over the somewhat longer term. But even there, I think, uh, to the extent that China is likely to challenge U.S. power, it is going to be to try to gradually displace the United States as being the dominant force in East Asia. I don't think even the most ambitious Chinese uh, really have in mind a global challenge to the United States. Now, in terms of offsetting U.S. power in East Asia, and particularly to try to discourage the United States from uh, continuing to protect Taiwan, uh, much less intervening in a uh, confrontation in the Taiwan Strait, uh, the the Chinese are really uh, uh, studying asymmetrical responses. Uh, Cyber warfare certainly part of it. Uh, the possible use of economic leverage against the American economy to discourage an excessive commitment to uh, Taiwan's de facto independence. I think we could have some rather serious frictions on that front sometime over the next generation. But that's still very different from a true superpower challenge on a global basis. Of course, even during the Cold War, we only had a a global challenge from the Soviet Union, largely in the... uh, in the military sphere, Uh, contrary to the CIA uh, estimate in, I believe it was 1986, that the Soviet economy was two-thirds the size of the American economy. Um, That ranks right up there with the (laughs) threat posed by Saddam Hussein to use his sophisticated arsenal (laughs) of unmanned aerial vehicles to attack the United States for accuracy. As we now know, the Soviet economy was probably at no point at all more than about 10% or 15% the size of the U.S. economy. So it never was really an economic challenger, only a very narrow military challenger. And I think looking forward, we don't even have peer competitors on that level in the foreseeable future.